All right. So let's get started. We'll start with um, background. So would love as we kick this off uh, to introduce the listeners to you. Obviously, I, we start with a fun icebreaker. So in terms of your jobs, give us your first, your last, your best, and your worst, or you can substitute in your weirdest, whatever whatever uh, works for you. <laughs> My, sure. Well, you know, thanks, thanks Connor, for, for starting off that way. My very first job um, being as I'm from Florida, Central Florida is where I went to high school, was at Walt Disney World as um, in the department called Parade Entertainment. So I did a lot of fun greeting work, uh, depending on which parade was coming through. I got to play kind of different characters. Uh, during the Christmas season and holiday season, the, they had this uh, fa the, these family lights from Arkansas that came in and, you know, they would have a very expensive nativity scene, but like always people were vandalizing it. So I was actually on duty guarding the baby Jesus in the Disney World nativity scene for a while, which I think is probably my coolest first job story that I have felt very important protecting baby Jesus at Christmas at Disney World and MGM Studios. So that's my first, my worst, it, it, gosh, uh, I've really liked almost every job I've had. You know, I, I waited tables a lot through um, college and law school, and that was a good experience. You know, I, I, there was a moment in time when I was transferring between University of Florida and Pepperdine where I worked as a pizza delivery person with my best friend. And the job itself was terrible, but having my best friend there made it a lot better. So, um, you know, getting people ordering fake orders or, you know, just not treating you very well. I think being a pizza delivery guy was probably the worst job I ever had. And then last job is the one I have right now. I'm the president and CEO of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. You know, we're the collective voice of the business community at the state, local, and federal level here in Arizona. And it's a fantastic job. I have a massive board. I represent all the major employers and job creators in this state. And it's a different issue every day. Um, and I've always been kind of a generalist, so it works for me. And getting to work with people from the C-suite down to the government relations department, understanding all facets of people's business and working with engineers, working with attorneys. It's it's great. It's a great experience. That's awesome. I don't think I knew that you went to Pepperdine. Yeah. Did yes. you like it? Yes. I, I think it's probably the most beautiful campus in all of America. <laughs> That's the guaranteed reaction you get when you say you went to Pepperdine. Uh, but yes, uh, it, I did like it there. It was so I've, I've been to plenty of schools. You know, University of Florida, um, ASU for law school. But Pepperdine for undergrad was great. It was about 3,000 students. You kind of feel like a family there. Was in a very bad car accident. Was hit by a drunk driver when I went to school there. And the school took such good care of me. I wasn't just a number. They really wanted me to come back and be healthy. Uh, you know, aside from how wonderful the view is, I'm somebody, and everyone who knows me knows this. I love the ocean. I play, you know, the waves crashing effect on Spotify at night to go to sleep. It, it, I, I love being by the ocean. But... Uh, more importantly was the faculty and the community there really was was special and some of my best friends to this day came from my time at pepperdine i did a sports camp there when i was a kid and um the only complaint i, I could ever levy is it was m mad hard to get up and down the stairs in the hills oh, from the door oh to the yeah. athletic field like <laughs> By day three of, of you know playing a sport all day, you're like, how am I possibly going to climb that last staircase back to my dorm? Yeah, and you know Malibu's not a cheap place to live, so we stay on campus for as long as we possibly could. 
And I know exactly what you mean. The older you get, the more you move up the canyon. So by the time I was a senior, I was living in the Towers apartments. So yeah, if I played Ultimate Frisbee or something like that, or even just went to a baseball game, by the time you walk all the way back up those stairs, yeah, your, your quads are burning. You're, you know, 10,000 steps isn't an issue for Pepperdine. Just let me say that. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> break my ankle playing basketball there and had to crutch around that campus. And I think my triceps were like, fantastic as a result of going up and down those hills all the time. So it's, it's good for staying fit. It's just good for staying fit. All right. So we talked, you gave us a bit of a hint of the chamber. Obviously you are the CEO of an organization that represents businesses and CEOs and mm-hmm. would love to hear more about the chamber, the mission, the members you represent. Give us kind of the sneak peek at, at the chamber's business. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I, I hinted at it a little bit earlier, you know, our mission really is to be the collective voice of the business community down at the state capitol, back in Washington, D.C., and at local levels. So, um, you know, just the history of Chambers and Commerce is that businesses came together and realized they had a big problem they had to deal with, and they were better suited to do it as a broad coalition as opposed to by themselves. So that's us. We're the broad coalition of business interests. And whether it's a you know free market, anti-regulatory, uh, better legal atmosphere, you know, kind of tort reform, we take on a lot of big issues, a lot of big labor issues right now too. You know, we're, we're protecting our at-will employment and right to work status here in Arizona. So um, those are a lot of what we work on. What matters to our employers, it, it runs the gambit uh, from tax reform, keeping us as the most globally competitive. And I say globally because we compete on a global level. I was just in Israel signing an MOU on some trade issues, uh, keeping us globally competitive, making us the number one state in the country to start a business, relocate your business, or grow a business. And I think we've done such a good job at that um, You know, here in Arizona. We have a great business-minded governor with Governor Doug Ducey, who came from the business world, who's CEO of Coldstone Creamery. So he gets it. He's uh, one of us. He's an ally when it comes to advertising how great Arizona is. And we're, we're competing now with states like Texas for big projects. We have a mega project every month announced here in Arizona. People want to be here. I mean, it really, it seems like Arizona is ground zero for growth, for new innovation. And again, outsider's perspective, you know, I, I tend to see the, the private sector and, and corporate America as a huge catalyst for making good change and using innovation to make, you know, make a, a, a better world, a better country, better, better communities. I'm curious, you know, to, if, if that's what you're seeing, if that's kind of how um, it sounds like it, at Arizona's, like I said, seems to be ground zero for growth, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So what am I saying? I'll, I'll be honest, politically speaking, in the political atmosphere, the business community finds itself in kind of a new, new, new territory. You know, we used to have a, a strong base, I would say, over in the Republican Party. And the, you know, Democrats usually favored raising taxes and regulations. Now what's happened, um, and we're a blissfully nonpartisan organization, I should say, the extremes on both sides are really anti-business. And so we have to carve out that middle for us and make sure that people understand, like, hey, when you when you see the fact that I'm sitting right now in Maricopa County, the fastest growing county in the country, that's because of the business climate we've created. That's because our employers are here. You know, it's because Intel is investing another 20 billion in new fabs here. TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor, they're doing 12 billion. I'm sure it's going to be more. That's a massive site. There's more cranes over their site right now than I've ever seen in my life. Um, you know, we we are uh, growing so fast because of our total environment. It's not we're not a state that writes big checks in the terms of incentives. It's just creating the environment for companies to come in and succeed, and it's worked. 
And I, I think that, again, we have a unique brand as Arizona businesses. We're known for being uh, open to opportunity for all. 73% of our state is from somewhere else. And what that lends itself to is this state becoming really like a meritocracy that you can come from anywhere. doesn't matter where you went to school or who your parents are. You can come here, succeed and have a great future. Um, we really are the last state I think for being a meritocracy. So let's, uh, there's a couple of examples that have really jumped out to me the last few months thinking about Arizona companies or, or innovation in Arizona and in particular groups that are really doing incredible stuff towards a more sustainable future. I, I noticed you were part of a quite impressive group that toured a, a, the Nikola facility recently. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, obviously the EV sector is booming um, in terms of customer demand and, and, you know, manufacturing growth across the country. We'd love to hear a little bit more about that company uh, and the growth and opportunity that Arizona is showing in the EV space. Yeah, no, Nikola is a great example. And you're right, we just toured the opening of their assembly line and they are putting, you know, selling and putting these elect electronic semi trucks out. And it's one of those things, again, that sounds science fiction until you go sit in one and ride and realize, A, it sounds like a golf cart, but it moves like a semi and it's fast, it has pickup. It's fantastic, it's great for the environment. And yeah, it's made right here in Arizona. So Nikola is a great example. When they're looking at where they wanted to go, they saw the work that we were doing with, you know, disruptive technologies. We really got our, our foot in the door with autonomous vehicles. And they saw this as a friendly regulatory environment for things that are new. And so Nikola came, uh, Lucid came shortly after them. We have uh, battery manufacturers coming because when you have the manufacturers, the supply chain wants to be nearby. So we're kind of building out that whole ecosystem of electronic vehicles. And I have to, in Electromechanicus here, there, I could go on and on. I mean, we are the hub for electronic vehicle manufacturing in the country. We're kind of like, this is a bad example, but we're kind of like the Detroit of EVs. You know, like Detroit's not like that anymore, but back in the day when Detroit was the hub, that's us. You know, we're, we're, we're just crushing it in this area. Just advanced tech manufacturing has found a nice niche in Arizona, and we're going to continue to expand upon that. And again, Nikola was one of the first. It's a great example, um, you know, and we're really proud of the work they're doing. And again, it, it, it's a win-win. You Not only are they making vehicles affordable, you know, able able to transport goods at a cheaper price right now when gas prices are skyrocketing, you have to imagine how great it is to have an electronic vehicle at the front of some of these semis. It's fantastic. So yeah, no, we're very proud of what they're doing. Awesome. You mentioned advanced technology has a home in Arizona. My, the second uh, example I would love to talk about is the Intel story and mm -hmm. what they've been up to. You know, it, it, Obviously, one of Arizona's big challenges that they're solving for creatively is, is water, but I, I would love to hear a little bit about the Intel story and what they're up to in terms of both tech and growth, but also, you know, in particular sustainability and, um, and really innovation around this stuff. Yeah. No, in, Intel, great chamber member. Uh, um, you know, I always have to disclose I'm a former employee of Intel as a, in their global public affairs department and they are ideal corporate citizens. Any state would be lucky to have an Intel. And for a lot of reasons, you talked about water, so I'll just start there. Intel came in with the goal of being water neutral, I believe, by 2030. 
they're beating that goal, they're going to be water positive by 2030. And what that means is they're treating uh, wastewater at their facility, um, which they built and gave back to the city they're at. This is the kind of corporate citizens they are, that wastewater treatment facility. And they're giving water, wastewater back now. It's it's fantastic to see that. But um, again, it took a lot to get to that percent water neutral to start with and eventually to water positivity. They realized that you, know, you can only do so much in a self-contained manufacturing hub. So they went out to their neighboring communities, some neighboring farms is a really good example. There was a high crop, you know, high water crop farm down in the Verde Valley and Intel went in and offered to help them switch from their crop to hops and hops use way less water. You don't have to do flood irrigation. They make that switch. And now Arizona has its first ever Arizona-based hops. And we we have kind of what we call the Intel beer, but the Arizona-based hops making these beer now. And that's because of Intel looking for ways to conserve water and be better stewards of their resources. And I mean, that, they really are leaders. You could give them the Corporate Citizen of the Year Award every year if you wanted. They just, they care about what the neighbors think. They care about their footprint, both literally and figuratively. Um, they, they really are putting in a lot of work in, whether it's water, whether it's getting more solar power in. And you know what? I have to say this too. This is not because the state or federal government forces them to do it. They are doing this on their own, exercising their own leadership. And it's it's the way the market is right now. The more and more you look at, if you're a manufacturer like Apple or Microsoft, you're starting to require your downstream to be produced cleanly. So the market is setting these uh, requirements, not anybody else. And it's amazing to watch the private sector respond to that with innovations that one, make our state better to live, and two, really showcases the brilliant people they have working there and the way they, they care about the state and the community. Awesome. Arizona-based hops. I love it. You got it some Arizona to... beer, beer next time you're here. I mean, that was my next question is like, so we just, I don't know if you saw, we did a, a Made in America episode on, we've done a couple, um, one that just came out on Four Peaks, but then we've got one more coming out actually next week on uh, another Arizona brewery. So I'm curious, like, give us your favorite, give us your favorite local beer. Oh gosh. You know, I feel like I have to say Kilt Lifter because it's the one that made the Arizona beer scene there. That's the Four Peaks big one that sold to the point where we had to literally had to change state law to allow, because we have this antiquated three-tier system that deals with distributors, Um, but it's important. It dates back to prohibition and and it's a good way of tracking where different beer and alcohol go, but you can't be a a restaurant and a producer at the same time. And they were being so successful that we need to up the gallonage for them. And now, I mean, all the laws have changed and um, that all started with Kilt Lifter. So I'll go with Kilt Lifter from Four Peaks. So that's that's my favorite. I know somewhere someone's probably like, yeah, right, Dan, you're a Michelob Ultra guy. Don't pretend. But yeah, I mean, in in the Arizona, you know, world, Kilt Lifter is what I think. I mean, they've, Forky Peaks has really done a ton of great, cool, innovative stuff in sustainability as well. Curious if you've got any kind of takes on the exciting stuff that they're that they're up to. What Four Peaks is up to? Oh gosh. Um, Again, they uh, they're known for for their water conservation efforts and are known for how they interact with uh, their community. You know, they sold to a, uh, a larger, uh, you know, um, national corporation. Um, and I think, again, they, and when they were buying Four Peaks, I imagine they looked at them and said, this would look great on our CSR and ESG reports, because this is a company that does look at conservation of water, that does care about their footprint um, and does brew in a way that conserves energy and water. So yeah, no, I mean, I'm not the greatest engineer to explain it, but they, they are very, um, again, another example of good citizens. We're just lucky here in Arizona to have such, you know, companies like that, that pay close attention to their environment and want to make 
the I think they had the goal, if I remember right, of making, you know, the state better than when they found it. And they really live up to that. I mean, again, just kind of keeping on the theme of, of some really cool examples coming out of Arizona that I've just been tracking. We're obviously mid-basketball playoffs and the Suns had another good season, didn't quite get as far as maybe y'all wanted to. Uh, uh, but I was at that I game know, seven I know. when we had a record loss to the Dallas Mavericks. You're right, it was brutal. But, let, but yeah. let's, 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 so let's look at the silver lining and take, take a celebratory lap around like the fact that the, the Suns and the stadium are like, the arena are really pioneering a ton of stuff in, in um, clean energy and sustainability. Yeah. And, you know, that's all right. Let me take a step back from the painful end of my dreams of a Suns championship when they were, you know, had the best regular season record. And, you know, we exited the playoffs a little bit early in a very rough way after going up to nothing. But that aside, the arena. So the arena, as you know, is named Footprint Arena. And that's after another wonderful Arizona story. I'm sure it should be at some point a feature of one of your, your, your organization, Footprint. And what Footprint does is, I mean, they have the patent on brilliant men came out of Intel. They have the patent on um, making using biodegradable materials to make containers. They want to move as far away from plastic as possible. And they're implementing that in the arena. And they're, you know, implementing that for companies around the world right now. So Footprint is doing amazing things. Um, Troy Swope is a very innovative, very, uh, I mean, very impressive CEO. They've got a very impressive board. I think that they're going to be, continue to do great things that, again, has the added benefit of making the world a better place. So, yeah, starting with our Footprint Arena, where conservation is on display. The same would be true for, by the way, the Diamondbacks just have to throw that out there. They're known for how they pay attention to their water usage as well, and they've changed how they do their grass as a result of that. So they're very conscientious as well to that too. So a special note to Derek Hall, their president and CEO, for um, he, he's a big, uh, you know, somebody who really cares about uh, the environment too. So they, they both have good leaders, but Footprint is is what's really behind that, I believe. And, you know, kudos to the Suns organization for going along with that and Robert Sarver and Jason and, and that team over there. But what, what they're doing um, is, I wish I could... I wish I could understand it better. This is where I wish I was more of an engineer to explain it, but how they're going to move us away from plastic is fantastic. So, you know, and again, coming out of Intel, I think that was that mentality there. Intel has been doing, you know, wonderful things in terms of uh, taking back the microplastics that are found in the ocean and then using it for packaging materials for their wafers, you know? So again, a little mini kudos to, to Intel right there, but what Footprint is doing with providing these alternatives is, you know, genius, um, literally. There's just so much innovation coming out of the state. And we talked about it a little bit, at, a little bit at the top, but what I think I saw the other day that five of the fastest growing cities in, in the country are, are in Arizona People are, are flocking. Having, I, you know, one of those folks that had previously been in Los Angeles and left, and now in DC. But I know so many friends had made the short commute from the LA and Southern California area to Arizona. Give us your your hypothesis. Why is it happening? What's driving it? Why now? Uh, we talk about this a lot. You know, by the time we're done with this um, podcast, three hundred more people have moved to Arizona. So it's it is growing that rapidly. And the, the biggest net migration we have in the Wall Street Journal just did a really good story on this is coming from California. I mean, you can track Florida's picked up most of their new population from New York. We're picking up Californians. That's okay. As we like to say, as long as you remember why you left. And the reason why I believe that's happening is, well, I'll attribute it to George Will because he most recently wrote it, that capital goes where it's most wanted and stays where it's most loved. 
And that's true for people. That's true for resources. And what we've shown in Arizona is we want your capital. We want your human capital as well as your, you know, uh, capital investments in the traditional sense. And if you come here, we will make this place the best to live, work, retire, get an education, um, raise a family. And, you know, we're keeping people safe. We have uh, better public safety plans than um, California and some of those other states. Illinois is another one. And uh, most importantly, probably, though, we have just passed the lowest flat tax in the country. So to have the lowest flat tax uh, for income tax is a huge win. And, um, you know, it's kind of proving the laugh, the, that old laughter curve, right, that uh, people will flock to the lower taxes. And so we, our, our state uh, revenues are up as a result of lowering taxes um, and our population is up. So people vote with their feet and they're voting with their wallets, too. I mean, we're winning on all accounts. I would say anybody wants to see you know an example of this, come spend some time in Phoenix and Scottsdale, then go to go to Los Angeles or San Francisco and see where you want your family to be and where you want your family to live. We have livable, livable large cities in Arizona, and people like that. What's the George Will quote again? I want to write this down. Um, it's uh, capital goes where it's most wanted and stays where it's most loved. He had a, a piece in the gosh, I want to say the Washington Post about that but i believe the originator you know i always want to try and give the give the the due to the original economist was um gosh uh was walter riston um if i have that right the old president of um the city corp a long time ago i think walter riston is the one who's who came up with that uh that mentality so probably best attributed to him it's i think his his exact line was capital goes where it's well treated it goes where it's welcome and stays where it's well-treated. Sorry, capital goes where it's welcome and stays where it's well-treated. And people have kind of expanded upon that since then. But yeah, it's true. It's 100% true. This also obviously leads to a bunch of growth. Like I said earlier, creative creative solutions to work around the growth and to solve for for growth. And, and you know, uh, Water's one that we talked a little bit about earlier um, and where I know Arizona's innovating would love to hear your take on on Arizona, the state and businesses in the state um, that are innovating towards some some really great water solutions. If you if you have some thoughts there, no, I do. So we were talking briefly before this. I just came back from a trade mission to Israel with the governor, with the Secretary of Commerce in Arizona, and a few other key stakeholders. And one of the primary reasons we went was to study how Israel was doing their water augmentation, because they're past conservation now. Israel is at a point where they've just augmented their water usage. And um, a lot of it's coming from desalinization, which some people view as a science fiction level technology again, because it, it just seems unreal that you're going to pull seawater out and drink it. But, you know, while in Israel, I went to the Mediterranean Sea, visited a des desalinization plant and drank a cup of water from the Mediterranean Sea that was in it 90 minutes prior. It's amazing what they're doing. They're environmentally conscious. They do constant environmental studies on what the brine deposits looks like. And uh, I think that... Arizona right now is looking at an augmentation strategy. We're a well-planned for state because of people like Senator John Kyle and Carl Hayden who came before us. They laid the Arizona Groundwater Management Act. So we've been managing our water very well. We're not having to say, you know, don't take a shower today or we can't put water out on your table. We're, we're nowhere near that yet. We won't be for a long time. But we to think through an augmentation strategy like desalization, which would probably go down in Mexico um, in the Sea of Cortez, and we'd have a lot of joint agreements to make that work, I think is fantastic. We also 
also need to get work with our farmers to get them to look at moving to drip irrigation technology, something that Israel's done very well, proven scientifically, it yields a higher crop and costs less uh, in terms of fertilization. And fertilizer is one of the highest expenses for farmers right now. So uh, drip irrigation technology, NDRIP, great chamber member, they're here, in, they're here in Arizona. They're doing a lot of pilot programs with farmers to show you're not losing anything by switching to drip irrigation as opposed to flood, but you get a better yield from your crops. So all of the above, the utilities are kind of leading the way on this, both SRP and um, Arizona Public Service, APS, they're paying attention to the water situation because, you know, we have a nuclear power plant here, Palos Verdes, and um, you need a lot of water to, to cool that. So the better water planning that we do and the better water investments we make now, it benefits the utilities, which benefits the whole state. So, and, and Again, you know, if you're a manufacturer looking at coming to Arizona, we have plenty of water, but you do have to show a 100-year water plan. And so there's a lot of creative ideas being um, put forward now on working with our, you know, Indian reservations and um, our tribal governments. So I think we've done a lot in, in that, that area as well, too. There's a lot of good strategies out there. And the, the business community is at every table working to ensure, you know, Arizona remains a good steward of its water flip side of the water discussion is the heat discussion. And we actually highlighted some of the innovation at the local level with, you know, the city of Phoenix has the, the country's first office of heat management, and they've been doing some really innovative stuff to look at, you know, how to keep cities cooler and, and more livable, um, how to decrease uh, mortality from heat related incidents. But it, I also think that, you know, it's not just the municipal uh, municipality, I suspect uh, that Arizona businesses think a lot about this too. Uh, and so we'd love to get kind of the Arizona business take on how do you keep the, how do you keep the state cool? Yeah. Well, you know, most people need to remember really fast as a, I'm going to give a public advertisement for the state of Arizona. We are more than just Phoenix and Maricopa County, which is the primary heat sink, I'll call it of the state. So yes, uh, it can get hot here in the summers. It's kind of like a nice dry heat. So you can argue it feels like a warm hug every time you walk out. But in reality, it does get really hot because we have so much concrete in Phoenix that kind of traps it in. And what you mentioned about the city of Phoenix, they're doing a lot of creative things. They're changing um, the colors of roofs. They're painting over roads in some ways that absorb it better and don't trap it as much, putting more greenery down. So there's a lot of things you can do to mitigate it. But, you know, we're a city in the desert. It's going to get hot. What a lot of people love to do in Arizona is from here in Flagstaff, it is always, you know, 20 plus degrees cooler. Um, you've got mountains, you've got green forests. We have so many different climates in Arizona. It's one of the reasons I love the state so much is the geographical diversity that we have. So you can go find a great place to spend some time and get out of the heat fairly easily in Arizona. But for those of us who have to stay in the heat, those mitigation strategies that you're seeing, I know every one of my large businesses that I've talked to recently are putting solar shades on all of their parking lots, which is good because it, it puts into solar. I was just at uh, Honeywell. Honeywell's new um, opening of a facility, a reopening of a facility, and one of their first things on their agenda is to cover their parking lot and solar panels, which, you know, um, helps with heat in cars and then also builds up uh, solar energy for the grid. So it's a it's a win-win on that. And you're seeing that in almost every parking lot in Arizona now, more and more solar shade coming in. So 
um, I think that's great. And that helps with that technology, um, even though it might not be as cost effective as we would like right now, it's going to get there and it's going to pay off to invest in that in your parking lots now. So that's, a, that's another way that a lot of businesses are doing it, but also remote work, looking at the time of months that, that they have the most employees in understanding when the summers are there, there's more they can do in times of, in terms of shutting down the office at a certain time. So you know, it's the, there's a plan. Every business has a plan for energy conservation. We probably both agree. Oftentimes, smaller businesses and local communities are also doing a lot of cool stuff and they don't get the benefit of the spotlight. So would love to hear you know, your take on any of um, any kind of local stories that are maybe not the, the big companies, big resources that, that are just doing cool stuff. Yeah, well, I would, you know, I'd re-emphasize your example of Four Peaks because, you know, they did... You know, even though they, they eventually sold to a large corporation, they started out as a small small business owned by two gentlemen. So, I mean, look at look at what Four Peaks has done. That's a great example. You've already featured that. And there's a lot of examples like that. Our small business community, like everyone else in Arizona, seems to believe that they are part of the broader uh, state community. I mentioned NDRIP. NDRIP has actually decided to put a location here. And that's a relatively small company for now, but they've they've come to Arizona, they've opened up a, a spot here and they're they're rolling out these pilot programs for drip irrigation um, as a way to contribute to the community. And you know, I think it's a loss leader for them, but it's going to pay off in the end. They're doing a very good job. And um I mean, gosh, there's a there's you know, Four Peaks is one example. Oso is another example. You're, you know, any of our, our local restaurants seem to be in on, on this and how to make the the community a little bit better. Um, you know, our local, some of the smaller commercial developers are making energy smart buildings now. And that's a new uh kind of a new initiative they take on their own because again it's not required by any of our building codes per se but they're they're choosing to find those outside groups to come in and certify it as leads or any of these other um you know smart smart buildings i mean again i could go from as someone as big as usa who has a huge presence here down to um you know a, a law firm down the street that's uh, doing that so people are paying attention to this they they are we're making sure you have the right kind of lights the right kind of um, walls and windows and everything else ESG is hot. ESG is super, super hot right now. Mm-hmm. Clean technology is, you know, one of the hottest places for venture capital to go. And these are financial and capital markets, you know, growth trends, economic growth trends that are really at the forefront. It seems like Arizona, uh, corporate Arizona is also at the forefront here. And so curious to hear your take on kind of how the capital markets uh, and and uh, whether it's ESG or clean tech, venture capital, like h- how that's playing out in the state. Uh, I think, well, you know, I don't think from what I've seen, the ESG savvy um, companies, especially those mid-level suppliers, they um, they are more likely to win, you know, like an RFP at a larger company. There probably was a day where RFPs from companies were more about just pure price points and different things like that. Now, from my, my understanding is they want to see some CSR, ESG in their reporting when they when they acquire or bring in even a subcontractor. So really, it's a benefit not only to the environment and outside world, but it also benefits your bottom line because you're more likely to get picked up by a larger company. You're likely to do business with an Intel or an APS if you're a socially responsible company. Now, you said it was hot, and that's true. I, what, I, what we are starting to see at the chamber is this 
pushed by some members of elected officials to come after ESG now, which is, you know, kind of a unique, and we could do a whole separate podcast on this, where they want to try and say that it's some kind of antitrust violation or some sort of weird coercion. And we'll maintain our position that businesses have the private right of contracting and um, we'll fight for that, that right for them. And uh, if they choose, again, if the market chooses to value ESG right now, that's what the market is doing. So attempting to kind of regulate the other way, which is the irony, would be really um, a mistake. So, yeah, we're, we're paying attention to all of that at the chamber. Yeah. One of the major stakeholders I know in, in Arizona uh, is the Native communities and, um, and also doing some really innovative stuff and, and really important part of a lot of the business community and, and policymaking community. Would cur- curious um, to hear a little bit more about how the Native community plays out in some of these conversations. So uh, yeah, our, our tribal reservations and our tribal governments have traditionally been good resource, good stewards of the resources they have. And at the moment, there's some tribal governments that have access to a lot of water. And they are they're at these meetings now, they're at the table talking about um, yeah, if you'd like to use our water for your, your plant, tell us, you know, what's your plan? How do you clean it? How do you return it? They are, uh, again, you never want to overgeneralize, but in my experience, tribal governments are exceptionally um, concerned with being good stewards, not only of their resources, but also of the natural resources that they impact. And so um, I think that brings a different, you know, outlook to the table. I think it's a healthy uh, outlook to have there. I think it's valued. And um, again, just by by fate, they find themselves in the middle of a lot of very important discussions around economic development right now and the role that they can play. And I think that's ultimately a good thing that you have someone who cares that much about environmental impact and um, conservation at those tables. And um, we welcome that and love love working with the, the travel governments. And I'm excited to see them part of the state's future economic development discussions. We have 22, by the way, in this state. So, you know, Arizona, I think, is among, if not the number one state for you know, tr- the amount of tribal governments that we have, and each one is a sovereign nation. So it, it, a lot of complex personalities, a lot of complex issues. Everyone's, every sovereign nation has its own unique issue. And, um, but the probably the biggest thing they all have in common, they do all tend to be really good stewards of natural resources and do have a, a big concern for that. So again, I think that's a valuable insight they bring to the table. I love the, I love thinking about the idea that you know, there's all, all sorts of folks that are at the table trying to make the best of things. Obviously, our brand, our orientation towards the world is consensus. It's finding you know, space and, and uh, for, at the table for, for all the parties. Yeah. I think you probably have a really unique job in that you've got companies and partners and stakeholders that come with lots of perspectives from lots of points of the state, folks from both parties, folks from a variety of um, opinions on hot button topics. How do you navigate that? How do you help oh, wow. find consensus among members? Yeah, that's that. That's my job. I mean, that's that's the daily that's the daily battle and the daily, um, you know, challenge. And it's very, it's, it's an exciting one. And one I welcome, you know, we also have on our board, the university presidents as well. So um, they're a very important stakeholder. They play a big role, by the way, in a lot of sustainability projects, a lot of sustainability planning, um, a lot of water planning. ASU has a, a center, you know, the Kyle Center for Water dedicated to this topic as is. So they're a great partner to have too. 
But, you know, they don't always get along with people in the legislature or the business community and, you know, or vice versa. And every day it's a new challenge. And how do we get them to focus on that, that thing that moves us all together? And that's really the best um, advice I've ever been able to give when, when dealing with building a broad coalition. There is always a, a, a point we can rally around. And instead of bickering over the 20% we disagree on, let's find that 80% issue and, you know, do an education effort around that. You know, we all, for instance, we all care about power in Arizona. We want to make sure we have power into the future. And, um, you know, we need to discuss how we're going to pay for the power that we want here. But um, getting everyone to support grid reliability and the need to recoup capital investments from major utilities, that's a universal agreement. We can talk, we can agree on that, we can move on. You might fight about little policies uh, amongst yourselves, but that bigger, broader issue, we will go to war over that. When it comes to labor, um, labor is an issue, by the way, with every company you talk to right now, they have a labor shortage just about. Our unemployment rate is 3.2%. If you look at the participation rate, it's around the 63, 62 percentile. So it's saying there's, you know, around 63 people for every 100 jobs right now. That makes the labor market really competitive. And that's why we will do everything we can to make it more beneficial to be an employee in Arizona, which, again, deals with protecting at-will employment and right-to-work status so that workers have rights and can't be coerced. So, you know, a, a lot of that is is the stuff we all unite around. Everyone wants to be able to, how their employees can feel safe at work and, and work together. That's something we fight for. Everyone wants to talk about power and water. Those are all big issues we can rally around. So um, again, there might be some disagreement on how we get there sometimes, but you know, you, you take, I'll, I'll go back to ESG. This is probably the perfect example. You know, ESG, there's usually a bill or two in every state legislature right now that wants to um, kind of punish banks that do lending based on ESG. And, you know, we've been able to shut a lot of that down because of the broader principle of private right of contracting. You know, that whether you're a bank or whether you're a company with a smaller vendor, you should be able to choose who you enter into a contract with and why. Now, if you think they're unfairly cutting people out of the, the market, there will always be the ability to create another market for that and for those people. That's how that's how the free market works. And we're a free market organization. And it has worked that way for years. What we have to watch for is this notion of whoever is in charge is right. So, you know, in Washington, D.C., if President Joe Biden is doing some mandates and our companies don't like it, we will fight this. But then we can't have our local um, state legislature folks say, well, we can do mandates here because, you know, we our mandates are pro-business and his are anti-business. And the answer is no, no mandates at all. Um, it's not about who's in charge. It's about the principle. And the principle for us is private right of contracting and the free market. So um, those are the big themes you can all rally around and agree to work together on. And that's the stuff that's exciting to get out of bed and go to work every day to protect, too. If you were to zoom back a little bit and think about some of your previous work at, at the more um, political level, there's hard. We're having a hard time finding cons finding consensus. Yeah. Anything that you think you could extrapolate or lessons you can apply from um, what you've been able to see and do at the chamber that you think we should be able to think about at, at a civic level more broadly to help um, help us all work together better. Yeah, um, no, it's a it's a good question, and you know this this theme of is this the worst it's ever been in partisan divide, and you know uh, comes up a lot. I'm I'm sure, you know, if I live long enough, I'll probably hear this is the worst it's ever been probably five more times in in my life. 
But I'll point to a good example. And again, it's Arizona's at the forefront of this because our senior center, Senator Kirsten Cinema, worked with us, you know, Senator Portman of Ohio on the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and uh, to, to pass a bipartisan bill to deal with our infrastructure and critical infrastructure needs, which, by the way, deals with water, uh, energy, and things of that nature. So that proved to me that the greatest deliberative body in the history of our country, which is the United States Senate, can still function and do what it's supposed to do and produce a bipartisan bill, a bipartisan act that, you know, a lot of people don't like the price tag. A lot of people might not like, you know, certain other elements that were in there. But by and large, that was bipartisan. There was stuff for both parties in there, but it benefits the state. I mean, Arizona is going to get a lot of funding for critical water infrastructure as a result of that. And that came about by her working diligently across the aisle. And that press conference was her and Senator Portman saying right next to each other in the forefront. You know, a guy from Republican from Ohio, Democrat from Arizona, they were able to get this done. So we can get this done. We, we, we can find things to, to sit across the aisle, have a conversation, and get some things done. And I think I'm very grateful for Senator Cinema for kind of leading the way on that, for not giving up on bipartisanship. She said she's going to be a fierce defender of bipartisanship, and she's really lived up to that promise. You know, anybody who wants to look to an example, look to the IJC, um, I'm sorry, the IIJA um, to, to see that it's still possible. And when, you're, when your state starts getting these funds and these grants, I'm sure everyone will be really thrilled that they were able to pull that off. But um, I know that's just one example. I could give a million examples on the other side. You know, we're right now in Arizona, it's, what is it, June 10th, I, I, you know, June 10th, I think. And we're in the, we don't have a budget passed yet. June 30th is the absolute deadline of when a budget uh, has to be passed when the state, go state government shuts down. It, you know, this is, in my tenure, the longest I've seen a budget go since I was working with the governor. And a lot of it is you can't get your own party to even agree on something, much less the other party, because, you know, Arizona has a majority of Republicans in both houses. So um, they're working on it. They'll, they'll get there. But, I mean, it can be discouraging sometimes. But in the end, I think we always get a pretty good result. And I know this legislature will come up with one. But, yeah. It, that's probably telling the fact that the budget um, and the sessions have gotten longer every year. It probably points to some discord among the members because traditionally they should be out campaigning and worrying about their election right now instead of fighting over budget issues, especially when we have a, a massive surplus in our state. But we are where we are. Getting close to the end. And I always kind of want to end on the same question, which is just, you know, give us the one the one thing that in any interview doesn't get asked or doesn't get captured correctly. Interviewers miss uh, you know, what's the one story you want to make sure to tell when it comes to, you know, your, your experience, your professional career, what's going on in Arizona, business community, anything kind of jump up on the soapbox, take the megaphone and, um, close us out. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. You know, I won't, I won't use it to put myself out there and talk about how, how great or mysterious my career has been, but I'll say this, the one story that I don't think ever gets told about Arizona is that, we didn't get where we are by accident. It was very deliberate. It was very targeted. And, and I mean that policy matters. The policies that we have been passing in Arizona for the definitely the past seven years with Governor Ducey, the prior um, near four years with Governor Brewer and even Governor Napolitano, they were largely pro-business policies 
and it set the state up to be competitive. If you go back 10, really six years, if a business was going to leave California, it wouldn't even look at Arizona. It would skip right over us and go to Texas. Not only are we competing for those businesses now, we're winning them. We're, we've picked up a business from Texas recently. So, I mean, the environment that we've created through policy has worked. It's a great story to tell. For some reason, you know, every time I read about Arizona's growth and its economic success, I never see people pointing to the policies as a reason, the low tax, low regulatory environment that we've created. You never see that. It's almost like they think this is happening by accident or there was giveaways. Couldn't be further from the truth. We're we're a state that doesn't have those kind of incentives. They're all statutory, non-discretionary. And, um, you know, companies have to earn an incentive in Arizona. And that really makes them part of a community too. Intel's one of the best examples, you know. They've earned their incentives. And when they choose to make another $20 billion investment, I mean, our state will respond in kind to that. The the ripple effect of a $20 billion investment to the city of Chandler and the whole state really is huge. So, I mean... That's the story that I wish would get told is why did we, how did we get here? What were those policies? Because it's a great story to tell. And I'll, I'll be honest, from my time in the governor's office to now, we would have other governor's office called it. What are you guys doing? Why is this happening? Why is Arizona landing, you know, this manufacturer, that manufacturer, you know, these billions and billions of dollars of capital investments. And we always would share, here's what we've passed. Here's what we've done. Here's the meetings we go to. But it, it's been very intentional. Um, you know, Sandra Watson, who's our commerce authority lead, she um, has her finger on the pulse of what's happening with site selections. And so we know how we have to be competitive and we've gotten ourselves there. And we've gotten ourselves there in a way where people understand what our state is. We're a state that cares about environmental impact. We're a state that cares about sustainability. And um, the companies have responded. And I got to tell you, Silicon Valley, as they leave Silicon Valley and come here, they love that. They love the good corporate citizen model being set here in Arizona. So, yeah, that's the story I wish you could tell is is that one. Um, And I do my best, but I think I'm coming up short because it doesn't ever get told. No, I think that's important. I mean, because the way you ended that, I think, is actually the really critical and and the perfect encapsulation. Like those those um, are important values to Arizona, and the reason that it's winning is because those are important values to the companies. They, like you started, the private market is d- dictating a lot of this too. And and those corp, you know, Silicon Valley, it's not just that you know they're they're happy to oblige. They actually those are values that they are, that they value as well. And so. I think you combine those two things. It makes a ton of sense to me. Obviously, I, I also just like anyone that's ready to that's ready to go for Texas. You know. Yeah. Well, I don't know how you end up in Washington D.C. You should have stopped in Arizona and uh, you know commuted there. Just, just, just kidding. I, I do love Washington D.C. I think it's a great. I love Virginia. I think it's a great place to live and and, and raise a family. And Virginia's done a lot of things right as well. But they've had good governors in in a row, um, bipartisanly. I'm saying that. So I think they're great on economic development issues.